from Acts chapter 7, uh, the first seven verses. I'll give you just a couple of moments to get there. The high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet... Even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Am I coming through those speakers? Can you hear me through those speakers at all? Great. Okay, thanks. <laughs> um, good to see each one that's here. I uh, want to welcome each one that's here via uh, live stream. I also almost said mainstream. That doesn't make any sense. Um, how, uh, Soren, rather. Uh, I was spacing a little bit during the beginning of the announcements, and I can't remember if you announced that next month, the beginning of the month, the first Sunday of the month, we'll have... Oh, thank you. Okay. Uh, so, next Sunday, we're not having communion this Sunday because of, uh, you know, what we're dealing with with regard to the coronavirus, and we want everyone to feel comfortable with regard to communion. But next Sunday, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday, next month. What month is this? May. June. June. The first Sunday in June, we'll plan on having communion again. Um, toward the end of this message, I'm going to touch on the some thoughts regarding communion. So hopefully that'll suffice for this this Sunday, okay? Um, Howard, thanks for the scripture reading. Patrick, thanks for leading us with those hymns. Beautiful choices, beautiful words to those hymns. Thankful for the Sunday school hour as well. Thanks for each one that's here and each one here live stream. Let's, let's open with a word of prayer and we'll begin, okay? Heavenly Father, I do want to thank you for your people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for technology. Thank you for your body of Christ that comes together the way they do each Sunday, Father. I'm just so thankful to be a part of this body of believers and to be a part of the body of Christ all around the world. Father, I pray you would bless our brothers and sisters in Christ that are in challenging situations and um, bless those that aren't in so, such challenging situations. Just bless us uh, this Sunday. Um, Guide and direct our time together in your word today. Keep me from saying anything I should not say. May you be pleased with what is proclaimed in our response to it. In Jesus' name, for his glory, amen. Acts chapter 7. It's been a bit of a challenge for me. I've, I've acknowledged that with you guys a few times. Uh, we, were, we are going to be in Genesis 15 momentarily. I want you to be aware of that. Genesis chapter 15. But for now, in Acts 7, um, I believe that there are three things for us to deal with when we come to Acts chapter 7. There are three things for us to deal with. Is everyone with me? What did I just say? There are three things for us to deal with 
when we come to Acts chapter 7. And the first one it would be, what is it Luke wants Theophilus to know? That's the first thing we have to deal with. I have to deal with that when I come to this chapter. What does Luke want Theophilus to know? And I have seven things for you that I believe Luke would want Theophilus to know. Theophilus is who this book of Acts is written to. It's Luke's second work written to this same individual, this same guy, Theophilus, has two big old books written to him, the Gospel of Luke and Acts here, right? Oh, excellent Theophilus. I wanted to make an orderly account of all, of all the things that have happened is what, how Luke starts out in the Gospel of Luke. And here in Acts chapter 1, it is... Uh, Theophilus, in the first account, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Acts is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus through the apostles, through the Holy Spirit. It's a continuation of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So what is it when you come to Acts chapter 7 that Luke wants Theophilus to know? And how does that chapter, chapter 7, fit into the rest of the book? Seven things, okay? Here you go. Are you ready? I'm going to be a little bit quick. Seven things I believe Luke would want Theophilus to know and would want us to know. That the advance of the gospel was just as Jesus had said it would be in Acts 1.8. That the advance of the gospel was just as Jesus said it would be. We're going to see in Acts chapter 7, and we've talked about this for some weeks now, that Stephen is going to give this message. The guys he's given this message to aren't going to like it. What's going to happen to him? What's going to happen to Stephen? He's going to get stoned. He's going to get stoned for proclaiming the truth. He is going to be stoned for this message. And what's going to happen after that? After Stephen is stoned, what's going to happen to the church? It's going to be persecuted and it's going to be scattered. That's what's going to happen. The church is going to scatter. Exactly what Jesus said would happen to advance the gospel, the way the gospel was going to advance, it's going to happen just as Jesus said it would. Jesus is moving in the affairs of men in Acts chapter 7. He's moving in the heart of His people and He's moving in the affairs of men. What does is, what is Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Stephen is a man, what? Full of the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even the remotest part of the earth. The gospel is going to move out of Jerusalem. That's the first thing that's, that, that Luke, when he writes to Theophilus, would want Theophilus to know, and we should know, is that the advance of the gospel was going to happen just as Jesus said it would. Second thing, the advance of the gospel was going to be met with opposition. The advance of the gospel was going to be met with opposition. We should know that. But Jesus isn't taken off guard by that. He told his disciples when he was uh, fulfilling his earthly ministry in this world, you will have trouble. He said things similar to that. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. The advance of the gospel was going to be met with opposition. But Jesus isn't surprised by that. Third thing, that Theophilus ought to know, and we ought to know, as we look at chapter 7 and all, that's, all the details that Stephen includes in this message and what happens to Stephen, this stoning, the reaction to Stephen, is that the gospel would advance and the church would grow even through 
or especially through opposition and persecution, that the that the gospel would advance and the church would grow even through or especially through opposition and persecution. We should know that. The preaching of the word would not be without effect. It is Saul of Tarsus that is there holding the coats while Stephen is being stoned. And we learned a little bit about Saul this morning. And he talks about the fact that um, he, he is ministering to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And I can't read that verse without thinking of Paul, who was Saul, thinking of Stephen filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions when he was being stoned. And Saul and Saul was Saul, Saul. Saul was there giving hearty approval to that stoning. I can't help but think that Saul is thinking of that and, and that the word of God is not bound when, when Paul writes things like that. I might be bound in chains, but the Word of God is not bound. I can't help but think that Saul, Paul, is thinking back to Stephen's message, this powerful message, and no one gets saved at that moment. What happens? Stephen gets stoned, but eventually Saul gets saved, and he recognizes that the Word of God is not bound. Yep, Stephen got killed, but the Word of God is effective. It's effective. And we're to know that. I think Theophilus is to understand that, and so are we. That the gospel would advance and the church would grow even through, or especially through, opposition and persecution. Fourth thing, that resistance to the gospel, that resistance to the gospel is a resistance to the Holy Spirit. What does Stephen say at the end of Acts 7? After he gives this long message, you, you men, in verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. He's been arguing and debating with these uh, men who were members of the synagogue of the Libertines, and now they've dragged him before the, syna- the, the synagogue. He's there you know, under this court, and he's being um, accused of some things falsely, but he never says to them, You stiff-necked men, you're always opposed to me. Why are you always in my face? Why are you always getting in my business? Why are you always in opposition, resisting the things I have to share with you? He never says that. He says, you stiff-necked men, you're always resisting who? The Holy Spirit. We're to know that opposition to the gospel is resistance to the Holy Spirit. When we are sharing the gospel with someone, and there is resistance there. It's not resistance to us. It's resistance to God and His Holy Spirit. That's what it is. And we ought not to take it so personally. It's spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. That's the fourth thing. Fifth thing, that Stephen's defense of the gospel is connected. Stephen's defense of the gospel is connected back. Wait a minute. Let me get this right. I wrote this sentence in such a weird way I can't read my own writing here. The fifth thing that we ought to know, that Theophilus ought to know, is that Stephen's defense of the gospel is connected, has connected Christ, has connected Christ back to the very start of and through the entire history of the nation of Israel. Stephen's defense of the gospel has taken Christ and has connected him back to the very start of and right through the history of the nation of Israel. No wonder Jesus says in... um, John chapter 4, I think verse 22, salvation, when he's speaking to the Samaritan woman, salvation is of 
the Jews. We have a Jewish Messiah. Jesus is Jewish. He's a Jewish Messiah. The, the Jesus we've trusted in is a Jewish person. He's a Jewish Messiah. We're to know that. All this that Stephen has to say is the history of the Jews. We have a Jewish Messiah. That was the fifth thing. Sixth thing I, I think we are to see uh, from what Stephen shares in Acts chapter 7 with these men who stone him is that the preaching of Christ is not inconsistent with the theology of the Old Testament. The preaching of Christ is not inconsistent with the theology of the Old Testament. Uh, Patrick, you brought it up this morning in Sunday school. I think I brought it up last week from the Gospel of John chapter 8 when Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you, th- because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is, though, it is these that testify of me. The preaching of the Gospel, the preaching of Christ is not inconsistent with the theology of the Old Testament. It's, it's one body of work. The seventh thing, the seventh and the last one I have for you, and there may be others, you may have been able to word these better, but here's the seventh one I have for you today, that God empowers believers to stand boldly for Christ. When Stephen is there, he is given what he needs in that moment to stand boldly for Christ. There's no explaining it apart from that. When he asks the Lord to forgive them for what they're doing, there's no explaining it apart from the fact that he is empowered by God to, re- to stand there boldly for Christ and to proclaim the things he is saying. And with that, also, with this seventh thing, not only does God empower believers to stand boldly for Christ, Christ is there to welcome us home. Christ is there to welcome us home. Who does Stephen see waiting for him? At at the point they're going to stone him, what does he say? In verse 56, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing. at the right hand of God. Jesus is there to welcome us home. What a powerful image that is. I think this is for all believers to understand. Second Corinthians 5.8, Paul writes, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What a joy it is going to be when that is the case for us. Now, we don't speed our death. We're not looking forward to death. We're not suicidal in our thoughts. Nothing like that. We're, we're not presuming upon the Lord. Nothing like that. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To, to live in this life is Christ. To die is gain. Is gain. Think of your best day ever as a Christian. Your best day with the Lord might have been your salvation day. It might have been the day you saw and got to be a part of someone else coming to faith in Christ. Think of your best day as a Christian because you felt that closeness to Christ. This is going to be way, 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 way beyond that. It's going to be just wonderful beyond words. Wonderful beyond words. No wonder Stephen is able to say the things he says. He sees the Lord waiting there for him. There's nothing holding him here. He's ready. Okay, there are three things we have to deal with when we come to Acts chapter 7. The first one is these things. 
what Luke would have Theophilus to know from chapter 7 and all the details there. The second thing we would have to deal with is what is Stephen trying to say to his accusers? Because Stephen's got a powerful message for them. What's he driving at with all the stuff he's saying to them? If I were to say to you, 2 plus 2 equals 4, 17 plus 17 equals 34. I've engaged your mind just a little bit maybe. Maybe not a mathematician. He was already there. But, but I've engaged your mind, right? If I were to say to you, I saw two mothers feeding their two babies their first taste of ice cream. I got to watch a YouTube video this week of a bunch of moms doing that. If I were to say to you, I saw two mothers feeding their two babies their first taste of ice cream. Oh, man. I just engaged your affections, right? You, you're, you're melted a little bit there, right? You're, I can picture us doing that with our babies. The faces they would make. If I were to say to you, I see two moms feeding their two babies their first taste of ice cream, but the building next door to them if I say to you, I see that right now, but the building next door to them is on fire. Now I've moved, hopefully, I've motivated you to action, right? I've taken you from intellect to heart to action. You're, you're going to move. You're going to go do something. The moms can't stay there. That, that building's on fire next to them. They don't know it. Stephen is doing that with this message with these guys. He's not just engaging their mind. He's not just engaging their heart. He's motivating them to action. Of course, the action they take is to stone him. But that's what he's driving at. He's, he's engaging the whole person. Everything about them. He, he's got them, hey? So how does he do that? Stephen, in response to his accusers, is not just listing how many ways God has interacted with their nation, because if you just read Acts 7, and Howard did a phenomenal job reading that for us two weeks ago, if you just read Acts 7, you can get the idea he's just relaying these facts, fact upon fact upon fact upon fact. He's not doing that. Just that. He is doing that, but not just that. He's not just giving a list of historical figures from their shared history. He is doing that, but that's not all he's doing. He's engaging their mind with that. But he begins with Abraham and Joseph and then Moses and the tabernacle and the temple. He's engaged their affections. When he begins with Abraham, I touched on this just briefly last week, maybe more than briefly. When he begins with Abraham, it's like a, I don't think I've ever seen this movie, but I'm familiar with that quote. How many movies, how many quotes do you guys know like that? You've never seen the movie, but this, this thing is quoted so much. Okay, this is one of them. You had me at Hello. I don't even know what the movie is. You had me at hello, right? I, I think this is someone that loves someone and says, you had me at hello. Stephen has them at Abraham. He has them at Abraham. He's got them. He, he's engaged their affections. Abraham's a big deal to them. Abraham's the father of their nation. Abraham, the Hebrew He's got them. He's got their attention big time. Not just their minds, but their affections. But it's not just that. 
he goes deeper. He also reveals to his accusers, those he's standing before, where they truly stand before God. And it's sharp. And it goes something like this. While God gave promises and prophets and prophecy and protection for Joseph and for Abraham and for, for our fathers and for, for all of our nation and gave a pattern for the tabernacle and for the temple while God gave all of that and gave prominence to our nation in different ways. While God did all of that to and through Abraham, the father of our nation and his descendants, you guys are like those who return to Egypt in your hearts. You're like those guys. You guys are like those who were in rebellion against God, who were in refusal of His Word and His prophets, who reduced the worship of God to ritual without the reality. That's what you guys are like. You guys are like those who are trying to get their own personal and political aspirations ahead of God, to put those things ahead of God. You're like that. When the glory of God, when the God of glory appeared to Abraham, he responded in faith. When the Lord of glory came to you, you responded with rejection. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Everything from their past was pointing them to Christ, and now they have betrayed and murdered Him. If I were to put it into one statement, if I were to take everything that Stephen says to them and boil it down to just one statement in our lingo, and how aggressive it would sound in their ears, it would be something like this. Who do you think you are? It would be that aggressive. But maybe the tone would be more aggressive, right? Who do you think you are? Before God... And before His Word, who do you think you are? Where do you think you stand historically? You're not on the side of God. You're on the side of Satan. Now that is cutting. And it is meant to drive them to action. And it does, but the action it drives them to is to stone Stephen. Eventually, Paul gets saved. And I, I'm, I'm certain that Stephen has a huge part of that. So I said when I began... I believe there are three things for us to deal with when we come to Acts chapter 7. And the first one is what Luke would want Theophilus to know. The second one is what we just went through. What Stephen is trying to say to his accusers, and we could spend a lot of time, and we spent a little bit of time talking about that. And the third thing we're going to get to in a minute. Maybe I'll jump to it now. No, I won't. Uh, before I jump to that, let me finish the second thing a little bit more. Uh, Jesus had told his disciples, do not worry about what to say. I believe that Stephen is given the very words to say by the Holy Spirit. These aren't his own words. They're very convicting words. And they're going to intensify the conflict. They're not going to... So if there's a conflict, Stephen's not coming up and saying things that are going to de-escalate the conflict. It's going to intensify the conflict. God was about to move and He was taking action to move the church and the message that was entrusted to the church 
And he was going to use this confrontation to accomplish his purposes. Many of us, myself included, are not real big on confrontation. I'm just not real big on confrontation. Sometimes it's necessary, but I'm not big on it. And that's okay. In fact, the New Testament tells us, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. We're to do that. But sometimes conflict is unavoidable. Peter and John were told not to proselytize, don't no, no longer speak in this name, and they said, we can't stop speaking in the name of our Lord. We're going to go on proclaiming Jesus. We're not going to stop. And they just went right on doing it. You, they said to, their, to the guys that were saying, don't proselytize anymore, don't speak in the name of Jesus. They said, you tell us what's better for us to do, to, to listen to you or to listen to God. That's a paraphrase. They're going to listen to God. And now Peter, uh, I mean Stephen rather, is confronted by these debaters and now he's dragged before this court and he's accused by false witnesses and he stands as a true witness and he's going to be the first one martyred for his faith. And that's not all. I asked you at the beginning what's going to happen next. There's going to be this great persecution that's going to break out against the church. Could you hear a modern detractor of Stephen saying, hey, just chill out a little bit. Just maybe don't mention those things so aggressively. Maybe back down some. Maybe take your foot off the gas a little bit, Stephen. Could you hear that? Or something like that. You're going to cause trouble if you go on talking that way. Don't you know who these men are that you're standing before? Don't you know who they are? They're the hubbub. They're the bigwigs. You can't talk to these guys that way. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. We live a fairly easy life in our culture. We really do. Until recently. But the life we live here is not always going to be a constant life of ease. And we ought, we ought to know that. We ought to know that. That doesn't mean we're to go out and be aggressive on purpose. That doesn't mean we're to go out confronting people. That's not what Stephen does. Stephen is confronted. Stephen's the one dragged before a court. Stephen is the one that asked to give up, hey, are these things so? He, he, he's not leading this. The Holy Spirit's leading this, and he's put in this position where he has an opportunity to proclaim Christ, and he, he just does it. He just does it. Okay, those are the first two things we need to deal with. The first one was, what would Luke want Theophilus to know? The second one would be, what is Stephen saying to his accusers? The third one, the third thing we need to deal with is this. What are we to take from all of this? And that, that's been my challenge, right? Because this is inexhaustible. To some level, this is inexhaustible. Just the study of Abraham alone. We would never get out of Acts chapter 7 if I just keep going on on Abraham here. I'm, I'm realizing that. This is going to be the last of this, this thing. We're going, to, we're going to move toward the end of chapter 7 next week, Lord willing, and we're going to be there looking at Stephen and those harsh words and what happens to him. That's what we're going to be looking at, Lord willing. But what are we to do with all this? And as I thought about that, I got to thinking about Theophilus. 
And that I'm certain that we're to know what Theophilus was to know. And that we're to understand just what it was that Stephen was saying to his accusers. But I also think we could get more familiar with the people and the points that Stephen has set before them. And, and I got to think about Theophilus a little bit more and I thought, here um, Luke writes the Gospel of Luke and he sends it to Theophilus. And now he's written this book of Acts and he sends that to Theophilus. And there's Theophilus and he gets to Acts chapter 7. Now, chapter, little number 7 isn't there and the heading in your Bible isn't there. He's just reading this just line by line or however he's reading it. And, um, and he gets to this. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And I got to thinking, that, that's, that strikes me so profoundly. It probably does Theophilus as well. And as soon as he reads, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, his mind goes, well, that first letter, that, that, that first writing that Luke sent to me, it had a lot to say about Abraham. I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at all the things that Luke had told me about Abraham. I'm going to get familiar with Abraham. Most likely, of course, we don't know for sure, but most likely Theophilus is a Roman guy. He's not a Jew. Most likely he could be a Jew, but most likely he's not. Most likely he's a Roman official of some kind. And maybe, maybe he read that letter again, the Gospel of Luke. And after reading that, he thought, well, that's not enough. I want to see if I can't get a hold of uh, something from Genesis, you know, and, and, and read, read something from the first five books. I want to see what I can learn about this man, Abraham. I don't know, just something I got to thinking about. But it does that to me. I got stuck on Abraham. So we're going to look at him again today. Because the third thing we need to deal with is what are we to take from all of this? Last week, I just wanted to bring out a few things from the life of Abraham. Now, we can't do this for Abraham and then Joseph and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. and We can't do this because we'd never get out of chapter 7. Well, we'd be there too long, maybe. So we're not going to do that, but we're going to spend today looking at Abraham again. And there are some things that Stephen's listeners would have known concerning this man, Abraham, in other words, the Sanhedrin sitting there listening to, listening to Stephen say, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. There's things that, and I mentioned this last week, and this is just repetition, I know, but it's important repetition. There are things that they would know inherently about Abraham that we just don't. Or maybe we familiarize ourselves with it at one point and then we forgot about that, but they would just have that story laid out before them in their minds, I, they would just have that for themselves. And there's a blessing in studying Abraham a little bit here, I think, for us. So, and of those things they would know about Abraham, there are things that they themselves did not possess. But every believer does. There are things about Abraham that they themselves did not possess, but every believer does. And it's just like a warm blanket for me, so this is what I wanted to share with you. And so I began last week uh, from Galatians 3.7, which says this, Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Now, not of natural descent. We're not Israel. I'm going to get to that toward the end of this message, Lord willing. But I'm not saying that the church has replaced Israel. Nothing like that. But, and, and Galatians isn't claiming that either. 
but we are spiritual children of Abraham. We are like Abraham. Now, we are sons of God because we've come to faith in Christ, but we are spiritual children of Abraham because we, are, we have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. And that language is just beautiful, right? Prior to Galatians 3.7, it says this. Paul writes to the Galatians, because the Galatians are struggling with um, going back to the law, right? They think, man, maybe we need to be circumcised to be right with God. This faith thing was great, but maybe there's something we need to add to it that's common. And we recognize it, and if, it, if it, that's presented to us in a religious environment, but we might not recognize it so readily if it's in our own lives. I began with faith, but now I'm trying to somehow earn my way, my something before I'm trying to earn what God has given me freely. I've made my worship of God something that it's not supposed to be. That can happen to people. That can happen. So, This is what Galatians 3 6 says. Consider Abraham, Paul says to the Galatians, right? You're you're doing this thing. You're you're thinking about going back to the law, but I'm asking you to consider Abraham. And that's what I'm asking us to do today. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him. It was credited to him. Second, I've been holding this, I gotta take a drink. He believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. We believed God for the gospel. We believed God for our salvation. We trusted in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. And that has been credited to us as righteousness. Not that we have any righteousness of our own, but that Christ's righteousness has been placed on our account, right? Through faith, by grace, through faith. We become these spiritual children of Abraham. And so, kind of the thrust of this message is, what does it mean to be living as children of Abraham? And last week I touched on a point, we're going to touch on that briefly in a minute, but I skipped past one. And what's the big thing we know about Abraham? The biggest thing you know about Abraham, what is it? He lived by faith. Abraham is marked by his faith. That's the biggest thing. Everyone knows Abraham is not marked out because of his holiness, his perfection. He's marked out because he was this man of faith. Give me the faith of Abraham, right? He was this man that is marked by faith. So that's the thing I want to talk about just briefly here. He lived by faith in God. But it wasn't a blind faith, right? God appeared. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And he spoke to him. And he called him out of Ur of Chaldees. And he promised him things. And he made a covenant with Abraham, actually. You say he made a couple of them. but And Abraham called on the name of the Lord. And God responded. Wow, what a guy. I want that kind of life with God, right? I want that kind of life with God. Well, as believers, saved by grace, through faith, we have that kind of life with God. Abraham exercised the same kind of faith you and I do. Abraham's faith was a faith in God. And there's three ways he expressed his faith. He had a personal reliance on God. There's this idea of a believing faith. 
Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then he had a practical obedience to God. This was faith expressed through what he did. It was a living faith. Through that, he enjoyed a relationship with God. In Acts chapter 7, it says in verse 4, then he left, or so he left the land of the Chaldeans. God said, go, so he left. When God said, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son, Isaac, I guess I'm going to do that. Now I'm going to trust that maybe, and Hebrews tells us, I think it is, that I'm going to trust that God can resurrect him if that's what he wants me to do. He's my one and only son, the son God promised me. And all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed through me. And this is my only offspring. God must be able to raise him from the dead. And he's going to just follow through. And he's going to trust God. He had a practical, very practical obedience Abraham does. So he had a believing faith. He had a practical faith. And also he had a faith that relied on the promises of God. But Abraham... um, had a faith like ours. It was not a, our faith was not a blind faith. We have seen something of the glory of God. We have. In creation. In creation. All creation declares the glory of God. We've seen something of the glory of God. It's not a blind faith. We've seen something of the glory of God in His Word, too. It, it's not a blind faith. We have an object to our faith, and that faith is God, and God has revealed himself to us. And through his people as well. And especially through his son. Especially through his son, as we learn about his son from his word. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When we see the love of Christ, how he just loved people. When you read First. Uh, Corinthians chapter 13, and it's and it, just the end of chapter 12, it says, now I will show you the most excellent way. That's the NIV. And then it talks about if, if I have all these gifts, but have not love, I'm nothing. And it goes on to describe love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Keeps no record of wrongs. All those things it lists. They just went out of my mind just now. But all those things it lists. It's just a picture of Jesus, isn't it? That's the kind of love Jesus has. Patient, kind, doesn't keep a record of wrongs. This is Jesus. So we've seen something of the glory of God in creation and in God's Word and through His Son revealed in Scripture. And God has spoken to us through His Son. Hebrews chapter 1, 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers at many times and in various ways. This is written to Hebrews, but we get it. But in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. He's spoken to us through His Son. So, yeah, God spoke to Abraham, but He's spoken to us as well through His Son as He is revealed in Scripture. And God has called us through the Gospel. God called to Abraham. God called us through the Gospel. And we believed. And we believed. We put our hope and our faith, we put our trust in God. And we can call on Him and He responds to us. We can call on God, and He responds to us. He answers prayer. And we know that experientially, but I want to give you a verse that would speak to that. A couple of them. Romans 10, 12 and 13, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, 
and richly blesses all who call on Him. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When you called on the name of the Lord and He saved you, guess what? He responded to you. He responded to you. He responded to me. And we've become heirs according to the promise. We're going to get there toward the end of the message here. And we've entered into a new covenant in Christ's blood. So Abraham was a man who had a faith like ours. That's why we're called children of Abraham. We've got the same kind of faith. Faith in the same object of faith. The same God who interacts with us the same way he interacted with Abraham. Not exactly, but you get it, right? It, it's the same. And like Abraham, we live in relationship with God. If we're going to live as children of Abraham, this is, was the point last week, where we enjoy a relationship with God. In Genesis 15.1, we're going to turn there in just a few moments. Um, it says this, Abraham, after Abraham is returned from rescuing Lot, I covered this ground last week as well, and he refuses to take anything from the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom says, hey, take all you want. You earned it. You came here with your 300 plus guys and you conquered these kings and you saved me and you saved Lot. You, you earned the booty. You can take it. And he goes, uh-uh. I, God forbid. I am not going to take anything from you. Not a thread or even a, maybe it's a shoelace or a sandal lace. So I'm not going to take nothing from you so that you can't say that you enriched me. I, I'm not doing that because... God enriches me is basically what he's saying. And then Abraham goes back home and in Genesis 15.1 it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Fear not. Now I'm picturing Abraham has gotten himself into a dark place. He's had this powerful victory and he's rescued Lot. Now he's back home and some darkness has come over him. And I don't understand what exactly caused that to happen for him, but we do understand how that happens, right? You're walking with the Lord, you're in relationship with the Lord, things are going along just fine, and all of a sudden just this darkness comes over you. You don't feel as close to God as you did just three weeks ago. And you can't explain it, you don't know what's going on, but there it is. There it is. I think that's where Abraham's at. Fear not, the Lord says to him. Fear not. And what does he say after that? Abraham, I am your shield. I am your shield. What's he saying there? I was the one protecting you when you went and rescued Lot. You only had 300 guys. You went up against all those kings. That was me taking care of you there. You don't need to fear. And I am your exceeding great reward. Your exceeding great reward. And I made the point last week with this that God is calling him, Abraham, to himself. And the same for us. God is our shield. He's our protector. And He calls us in relationship to Himself. He calls us to Himself. 1 Peter 1.5 says, of believers who are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a part of our salvation that we haven't entered into yet. It's coming. But we're, until then, we're shielded by God's power. And God is our great reward, our exceeding great reward. Just like Abraham. To live as children of Abraham, we're living just like Abraham. Okay, to the last point now. The children of Abraham also live on the promises of God. And I just touched on this briefly. I won't 
cover the same ground as we did last week, other than Galatians 3.29, which is where I got this expanse of thought from with regard to looking at just Abraham here out of Acts chapter 7. So, Galatians 3.29, it's our highlight verse for today, says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, I belong to Christ. I'm Abraham's seed. I'm a child of Abraham's. I get that. But I'm an heir according to the promise. Now, maybe I'm not so sure I get all that. That sounds fantastic. I'm an heir according to the promise? That sounds wonderful. Our faith has brought us into a relationship and what is yet to come is on the basis of something that is called the promise. Now, the promise made to Abraham is related to Jesus, the Messiah, and that portion of Abraham's promise is what we're included in. Hey, there are some there are some uh, material or some physical promises to the nation of Israel that don't that we would not necessarily be that we're not included in. Let me just say it that way. We are heirs of the spiritual blessings that God promised to Abraham. Not the physical or the national or the material blessings. God's not finished with Israel. That's what I'm trying to say. We're going to come back to that thought in a second. In, go to Genesis now. Genesis chapter 12. We'll start there. So you see, wait, before we do, if you'd look at... Um, Acts 7, I'm going to read 3 through 6. Stephen says, And said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had moved him to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even while he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which, I'm going through seven now, and whatever nation which will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. Well, that's a mouthful. But Stephen's listener would go, I know where that's from. Uh, Moses wrote about that. I, I know where that's from. Acts chapter 12, or Genesis chapter 12. We'll start here. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth, Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, he's not called Abraham yet, he's Abram, if I just flip that around a few times, you'll forgive me, right? If I'm calling Abram, Abraham, and okay. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so shall your, and so shall, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now that's part of the promise that we're entered into. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We're entered into that through faith in Christ. We're blessed. And those blessings include a bunch of things, a bunch of spiritual blessings. We're justified, right? 
Uh, we're sanctified. Um, there's a bunch of those spiritual blessings. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about that. But what a promise God makes to this man who is 75 years old, it says in verse 4 of that same chapter, who's got no kids. What a promise He makes to him. Now Genesis 15. And um, I'm just going to take this a verse at a time. If I'm not going to do this because we're running short on time. I just need to make it clear to you that we're not Israel. The church isn't Israel. And God's not finished with Israel yet. I got a bunch of verses here I wanted to share with you, but I'm going to skip past them. But I'm just going to share a few of them with you. You can jot them down if you want. But most of them are out of Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, 11 through 12. Romans 11, 17 and 18. Romans 11, 24 through 27. In that portion of Scripture, Romans 11, 24 and 27, uh, Paul is writing to the Gentile, telling the Gentiles, hey, um, don't get conceited. Don't get all puffed up about yourselves. Don't do that with regard to your view about Israel. Basically saying, God's not done with Israel yet. Don't get yourself all puffed up like you're all that. God is not done with Israel yet. Don't be ignorant so that you won't be conceited. That's the actual word. I wrote it down. Or don't be wise in your own eyes with regard to these things. Israel is not totally or finally rejected. Another, another a couple of verses, Romans 15, 8, and 9 which um, Patrick used this morning, and it just made my mind, in fact, maybe we'll do just those two. Romans, keep your hand in, in Genesis 15. Romans 15. Eight and nine. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that's the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. There's a distinction made there between the nation of Israel and Gentile believers. And not time to dig into that, and I'm not even prepared to dig into that, but the point is God's not done with Israel. But we are children of Abraham and we are blessed with spiritual blessings because we've come to faith in Christ. Okay. Genesis 15. Verse at a time, or two. The first three verses, I already spoke about them a little bit, so I'm just going to read them. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great, or I am your great reward. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Do you see this thought process Abraham has now? Went and conquered those guys. I rescued Lot. I'm back at home now. God, you gave me this promise back there. Genesis 12, we just read about that a few minutes ago. How is this even going to come to pass? It's not even possible. What's going to become of me? God's coming. He has this on his heart and his mind. God comes and tells him to fear not. And Abraham says, Since you have given me no, given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. So he's thinking maybe, maybe this is how God's going to do it. But then it says this, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Isn't that what we need? If Abraham needed that when he was in a dark place, when he was spiritually drained, when he, when he was depleted, don't we need the word of the Lord? If Abraham needed it, 
Don't we? When we can't quite figure out what's God got in store for us, we don't need more of our own thoughts about our life. We don't need more psychology about what life's about. We need a word from the Lord, don't we? Abraham did. Then the word of the Lord came to Abraham. Which is beautiful. Saying, This man will not be your heir, but the one will come forth from but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. The Lord reassures him in verse five, and he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, it must be dark outside. Now count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Have you ever tried counting the stars in the middle of Wyoming on a clear night? You're not going to be able to do it, right? You're not going to be able to count the stars. You just can't count them. They're innumerable. By your estimation, you, you can't count them. He says, that's what your descendants are going to be like, Abraham. He come, God comes and He reassures him. And then in verse 6, and this is what makes Abraham the father of all those who have faith. It says, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He, he just took God at His word. He believed God for what He said. And I think there's probably a believer or two in here that needs to do that very thing. Maybe today, maybe this week, you need to take God at His word. You just need to take Him at His word. You need to believe Him for what He said about you. You know, uh, when, when uh, Stephen is given that message to them, and I put it in a short sentence form, and the question was to them, who do you think you are? We could do that, but without without the sharpness to it, and and with a with a with a softness to it, and ask ourselves the question: Who do we think we really are before God and before who are we really? Without the sharpness, we're, we've come to faith in Christ. We're we're saved. We're justified. We're heading for an eternity with God in heaven. And we could just build on that. Who who do we? Who do we really think we are? Just like Stephen, we don't have to think because we we're representing Christ that the world is coming against us. The world isn't opposed to us. The world is opposed to the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual battle. So just like Abraham, we're saved by grace through faith. Through faith, and what God has done for us. What God has said. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or the word of the Lord, right? Then in verse 7, God reminds Abraham of, I think God's reminding Abraham of who he is and that he's unchanging. I think that what, that's what God is doing in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of, Chal- of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. God's saying, I haven't changed. I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't forgotten what I said to you when I told you to leave Ur of Chaldees. I- I'm the same. I'm the same yesterday. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Same God. And in verse 8, Abraham is very real with God. He said, O oh Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? He's just looking for greater assurance. There's nothing wrong with that. He's just being real with God. Lord, I need some assurance. 
Before Cindy and I moved to Utah, I needed insurance almost on a daily basis. Are you sure, Lord? Are you sure, Lord? We need that. We need assurance. And you know what? God's okay with giving it. He gives Abraham that assurance in the most powerful way. And this is how he does it. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer. Okay. And a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite of each other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abraham drove them away. What in the world is going on here, right? If you just read this, and some of you probably know what's going on here, but maybe many of you do. But just reading that just for first blush, if you just read that, you'd think, what? Lord, give me some assurance. Okay, go cut up a bunch of animals and lay them out. God is making a covenant with Abraham is what he's doing. He's doing what is called cutting a covenant. And it's a binding agreement between two parties. And what you do back in the day, it could be any two parties. You could make it up this covenant, a binding agreement. You couldn't break it. Because if you broke it, what, what would happen is you'd cut these animals in half and you'd lay them down and then you and the other party would walk between the pieces and that would bind that agreement. It would it would affirm the contract or the covenant that you were making between each other. You were saying, the thing we just agreed on, we're going to follow through with. And if one of us doesn't, you can cut me to pieces like these animals have been cut into. That's what's going on here. This is a, this is a covenant, a binding agreement. If we don't have time, you could turn to Jeremiah 34 and it would put the picture in your mind. There are some guys that that broke the covenant, and God says, uh, yeah, we don't have time. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Jeremiah 34. I can flip there fast. I'll just read two verses. You don't need to turn there. Some guys have broken the covenant between themselves and the Lord. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of my covenant, which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life and their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. Wow, they broke the covenant. So that, that's what's happening here. There's this covenant going to be made. But what is interesting about this particular covenant And we'll just read it here Uh, from verse 11. These birds of prey come down in the carcasses and Abraham has to drive them away. I'm thinking, what a yucky thing to have to do, hey? There's these birds of the air flying down on these carcasses and they're nibbling on it and Abraham's got to chase them away. And What is he doing while he's doing that? He's just waiting on the Lord to come. He's waiting on the Lord. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Apparently, even more darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land. This this is Acts 7. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, 
where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquities of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Here the Lord just passes between the pieces. Abraham doesn't have to do it. This is this unconditional covenant, right? The Lord himself passes between and says, I am giving the land to your descendants. And the descendants aren't even born yet. He says, I'm giving it to them. It's going to happen, Abraham. And I'm letting you know for a certainty it's going to happen. The covenant is sure. The promise is sure. The promise I promised you back in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, is sure. You can trust what I've said to you. I'm reassuring you with this covenant that the things I promised you are going to come to pass. It's a sure thing. And we have entered into the new covenant in Christ's blood. And it is a sure thing. It's a sure thing. All who trust in Him will never be put to, put to shame. Our faith in Christ has brought us into the promise of Abraham, the blessings of Abraham, the spiritual blessings of Abraham, which was all families of the earth shall be blessed through you, through the Messiah, through Christ, who died on the cross to pay for our sins, and anyone who puts their faith and trust in Him has eternal life, is justified before a holy God when we had no justification before Him prior to faith in Christ because to stand before a holy God in our sins, in and of ourselves, is to become toast before Him, right? We can't stand before Him. We don't have any righteousness of our own. So if I softly ask the question, who do we think we are? Galatians 3.29, I think, answers that. We are heirs, heirs according to the promise. And I think the promise that Paul is referring to in Galatians 3.29 is this unconditional promise. Those of us who have come to faith in Christ God is going to take us all the way home. It doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on us. Yet we've trusted in Jesus, just like Abraham trusted in God, and he left Ur of Chaldees, and then God made this covenant to him. Just like Abraham, we are heirs according to the promise. It doesn't depend on us. God's going to take us safely home. We are justified before God, and we are co-heirs with Christ, and we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, is what the writer of well, Paul says in Ephesians 1 3. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that would be a message all by itself, wouldn't it? Consider all the spiritual blessings. If you just read Ephesians chapter 1 in the beginning of chapter 2, you could just start underlining or marking, maybe you have done it before, all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We are blessed with Abraham who was given the promise. Okay, we got to close here.
Heavenly Father, I want to thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this time. Thank You for Your people. Thank You that we are heirs according to the promise. We are heirs, co-heirs with Christ, rather. Help us to understand what all that means, Father, and help us to understand it in even a deeper way. In Jesus' name, amen.